This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. I got a comment from Bob last week. Bob responding to episode 51 entitled Deus Ex Machina. He responded with one word, du, D-E-U-X. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I never took French or Latin, so I don't know how to pronounce any of these words. I thought Bob's was sort of an odd comment, just one word, D-E-U-X. He didn't say anything else. So I went back to the two feeds. In the two feeds, there are two feeds for this podcast. There's the Mormon Discussions feed, which you can get through iTunes or other distributors. And then there's the Mormon Awakenings feed. And even though this podcast is nominally called Mormon Awakenings, it's distributed to the, through these two feeds, both operated by Bill Real, by the way. And many thanks to Bill. And in the Mormon Discussions feed, I accurately spelled Deus Ex Machina. The Deus part is D-E-U-S, but in the, Mormons, in the Mormon Awakenings feed, I spelled it D-E-U-X, the difference of one letter. And Bob, in his comment, in his note to me, pointed this out by just spelling D-E-U-X. So thanks to Bob. And I kind of like the way Bob told me that I had misspelled Deus as do in the Mormon Awakenings feed. He didn't write, Dear Jack, you misspelled days. You put an X instead of an S. He just wrote D-E-U-X, which I, again, I think it's pronounced do or do or, you know. And this was kind of like a little puzzle I had to go solve. And so I went back to the two feeds and I looked and then I corrected it. And I actually liked that, that he told me in that way in sort of a, a way that made me think it was more fun than him just coming out and correcting me. The only reason I raise any of this is because life teaches us and corrects us, I think, more like Bob taught me and corrected me. Life teaches us in subtle ways, almost in riddle-like forms, yet in ways that are very focused, economical, pithy even. Because when I read Bob's comment, the one-word comment, D-E-U-X, I knew immediately he was referring to the title. And I knew immediately that perhaps I had spelled it wrong because I had looked up how to spell Deus, D-E-U-S. I didn't know how to spell it. One word, kind of a riddle, but so focused. And it was easy to figure out. Well, the lessons that life teaches us, particularly at those moments when we notice them and remember them, are, are kind of like this. Something just hits you in a certain way, tailored specifically to what you've been thinking about or what you're processing or what you're going through. There's words for this phenomenon. Some call it synchronicities. That's a fancy word for a coincidence that's not a coincidence, an intentional coincidence. In our community, we call it being guided by the Spirit. But however you think about it, life seems to drop these little Easter eggs or little breadcrumbs or little guideposts along the way. And they're subtle and small and invisible to just about everybody except you. Had Bob sent that comment to anyone else on earth, they wouldn't have known what he was talking about. And this seems to be how life and the divine teaches us, guides us with subtle things that are invisible to everyone else except 
for us. Guidance that's just for you. Makes life interesting. It also makes us believe, convinces us, that God knows us as individuals. That's kind of nice. We don't talk much about the specific, the individualistic, the invisible to all except for you, the individual, in our community all that much. We don't talk about that aspect of life, hardly at all. Instead, we talk about the universal straight and narrow path that all must walk that applies to everyone equally. I mean, that's what the story of the iron rod is really saying, isn't it? There's one path. It's straight. It's narrow. Everyone's got to walk that path, cling to that iron rod. And if you don't, you're lost somewhere. You get lost in the woods, you wander off, you're The path is unchangeable. The path is what it is, what it is. And your job is to walk the path or not. There's no specific path for you. There's no trail of breadcrumbs for you. There's no weird comments being emailed to you from the bobs in heaven with the one word message that only you can figure out. None of that because the path has been established. It's straight, it's narrow, And you're either on the path or you're not. And the path is obvious. And if you don't get on the path, well, you're rebellious. Off to the terrestrial kingdom with you. Of course, I'm going a little overboard here, aren't I? I mean, I'm overlooking the fact that there are universal principles. There are some things that are universally destructive, no matter who does them. There are some things that are universally beneficial, no matter who engages in them. There are some basics. There are some basic emotions that are fundamentally destructive. And there's a whole different set of emotions that are fundamentally constructive, no matter who you are. And so I'm going a little bit crazy, intentionally so, criticizing the straight and narrow path, this rubric that we're so familiar with. But I'm going a little bit crazy making fun of that notion to make a point. And the point is this, all things that are universal, those lessons that are fundamental, that are basic, those are just the start of life. Understanding and mastering those things at a, to a certain level of confidence, that just allows you into the game. And if you can't get to a certain level of rudimentary competence with these fundamentals, then that's the game for you. You need to just work on those things. That's it. And that's also fine. But beyond that, there's something very tailored for you, for your path, for your mission, for your purpose. And this higher type of guidance comes in the form that's more similar to the email that I got from Bob. They come in sort of a cryptic, pithy, secret sort of sign that only you can understand. And that's what is great about it, but that's also what makes it difficult and scary. Because sometimes the most poignant synchronicities in your life, the most powerful spiritual experiences and spiritual guidance that you'll receive will be understood by you and you alone, and there'll be no one who can confirm it for you except the sender of it, God. That's it. And if you've spent your life deferring to others and trying to please others and looking for confirmations from an authoritative third party, you're going to miss it because God talks to you as an individual. And the relationship is intimate between you and God. 
implicit in all of this is that God wants something unique, both from you and for you. That there's a unique path just for you. And along this unique path, there are specific lessons just for you, specific experiences that are going to make you happy. Of course, oddly, most people don't want to believe this. They don't want to look. They don't want to see. They want instead to do what they've been told. They want to live in a way that will justify the checkmark that they're expecting from all the authoritative figures around them. The checkmark that they're expecting all those figures to give them as a reward for their compliant behavior. They want the star on the forehead. That's what most of us want. I had a very interesting experience when I was about 21. I had just come home from my mission. I was working over the summer in New England, painting houses to pay for college. The mission president at the time, not my mission president, but just the local mission president, was in the ward that I was attending. And I remember talking to him one day, and he asked me about my personal habits. Was I doing all the things I was supposed to be doing? Was I keeping up the missionary pace, et cetera, et cetera? And I was, actually. I, was, I had good spiritual habits. I was reading scriptures, and I had contemplative time and good prayer habits. And, and these are habits that I still have. I mean, I, I, I've always liked these sort of habits. So I nodded to him, and I said, yes, yes, sir, I, I'm keeping up with all those important practices. And he nodded and looked down at me and told me that was just fine. And I came away from that interaction with two thoughts that have stuck with me for a long time. The first was, why did that guy, that mission president, who he wasn't, again, he wasn't my mission president. He was just the local mission president for the local mission. Why was he, why did he think that he could interrogate me like that? What, 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 what did he think he was bringing to the conversation? But secondly, and more importantly, was this realization on my part that I cared what he thought. I cared how he evaluated me. That, 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 that my concern was more for what he thought than a, a real pursuit of spiritual truths on my part. And this made me feel disappointed in myself because, frankly, I thought he was sort of a condescending, he was kind of a dink. And yet, because of his status, his authority, his perceived power, I, I cared what he thought. That was important to me. I wanted to make a good impression. That's what mattered to me. And I remember distinctly realizing it at that moment, that 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 was the thing I was concerned about. But that experience made me begin to think about to whom exactly I was granting authority. That's been a pattern of my life, a fractal pattern, if you will. These sort of experiences that have repeated over and over throughout my life of hoping that a third party, a person on whom I had endowed with my authority, would look at me, evaluate me, look at my bona fides, and then pat me on the head and tell me, yes, you are worthy of esteem. You are worthy of status. Now, I don't think this is particularly unique to my experience. I think a lot of us go through that sort of experience as we transition from young people to more mature people. But these sort of events had happened enough in my life as a young person and as a slightly older young person that I started to realize that working that out, working out my relationship with authority, working out my relationship with my own authority, claiming my own authority for myself, that that was part of my karma, part of my mission, part of my unique path.
And now I feel like I've worked it out and I have views on it. And it colors everything that I say. If, you, if you've been listening to this podcast at all, well, you've probably noticed that by now. That was the karma that I needed to work out using the language of the East. And karma is an interesting concept. It's not really understood well by Westerners. Because when we use it in the West, when we say, oh, karma's a, you know, a female dog, the B word, what we think of as karma is sort of unavoidable comeuppance for bad conduct. So if you're mean and rude to somebody or you won't help somebody who's broken down by the side of the road or you won't give money to the homeless guy, then karma comes back. And then when you need something, you don't get the help or no one will stop to help you when your car breaks down. You know, the it's sort of a, a sort of a cosmic comeuppance. You know, if you're a jerk to someone in public, then later on you'll be humiliated in public. That, that's, that's how we think of karma in the West. But that's really not what karma is. Karma really is more like an eternal problem that has to be dealt with, that has to be solved or resolved and resolved properly. And if this cosmic problem, this karmic problem can't get worked out, it just keeps appearing over and over and over until it's dealt with properly. And when I say dealt with properly, all that really means is that that there's understanding about the problem and, and one can move past it. So in this sense, if you pass the guy on the side of the road who needs help and you just go by and not help and think, oh, to heck with that guy. Well, you're not really working out the karma. And then you'll keep having those type of experiences. You'll either witness them or you'll be the person who needs the help. But somehow you'll learn this lesson of how to deal with that type of situation. And when you do, then the karma is worked out. Then it's, then it's the next thing. So karma is not quite comeuppance, but rather it's just something that needs to be worked out. A situation from which you need to learn and grow and recognize. And then once you do, then you move past that the karma's worked out and dissipated. And in the East, they, most of them believe in reincarnation. And so life after life after life, you can work out karma and whatever you can't work out, then you just take with you to the next life and you work it out there. We don't, in the West, really believe that. We don't believe in reincarnation as a general statement. But we do believe in eternal progress. We believe that progress continues past this life. So we sort of believe in reincarnation, sort of, because we believe we'll just keep progressing forever. Well, you know, that, that's kind of like, you know, working through things forever. So I think part of my mission in life, part of my karma, if you will, has been to develop a workable relationship with my own authority and those who try to wield authority over me. There's a great story in the New Testament, one that we seldom talk about. And I suppose it's not really a story. It's more like a little vignette, and then we don't hear much about this particular character. But the character, of course, is Joseph, stepfather of Jesus. We don't know much about Joseph. But what little we do know about him is, well, it's an incredible karmic opportunity because he found himself in this incredibly loaded situation that just had to be worked out some way or another. And as he worked out the specifics of this cosmic and karmic experience, he received what many of us, what many of us will receive in our own karmic cosmic situations, specific guidance just for him. 
that only he and God could be certain about. And I think you remember the story of Joseph. It's a heartbreaking story on so many levels, which makes it all the more beautiful. But Joseph's a young Jew in Jerusalem, and he's engaged to be married to Mary. We don't know if this is an arranged marriage or if he really liked her. We don't know if he knew her from the time they were little kids or if he had just met her the week before. I'm going to postulate, however, that he did know her, that he knew her well, that he liked her, that he was looking forward to getting married to her. And I'm sure as a, you know, a young man, he was looking forward to the conjugal relationship, that intimate relationship between man and wife. And then he's presented with this situation that must be worked out by him alone. He's presented with this path to walk led by God in such a way that only he could really understand it. And I want to set aside you know, the path that Mary had to walk. I mean, Mary had to walk an incredible path too, but I want to set that aside for just a second. I want to acknowledge it because Mary's path was even more incredible. But, you know, Joseph wasn't Mary. He was Joseph. And let's look at it from his perspective. Well, what happened? Weeks, months, we, we don't know. But, but before they're married, Mary shows up with some news. And the news is, uh, I'm pregnant. And prior to this moment... Every woman who had ever walked the earth and became pregnant, well, she would only get pregnant in one way. And that one way was having conjugal relations with someone who was not Joseph because he knew he hadn't had conjugal relations with her yet. And, well, that must have been a little bit of a disappointment for him, to say the least. And again, I want to set aside, you know, what's going through Mary's head because that was hard for her. But let's instead focus on what's going through Joseph's head. You know, in status and manhood and being emasculated and being cuckolded and thoughts of betrayal and thoughts that his intended would would be so disloyal. Because again, there's only one conclusion one can draw when one's fiance shows up pregnant. And this perceived betrayal must have been brutal. And though we don't know much about Joseph, we do know one thing about him. He was a good man, good enough to not call for the full weight of the law, which would have been stoning, because that was the punishment for a woman who became pregnant outside of wedlock, stoning by the community. So he didn't call for the full weight of the law, the full judgment to be executed against Mary, even though it was his right. Instead, he sought to put her away privily and translated that means he he just wanted to break up with her and let's just act like none of this ever happened. And I'm not going to say anything to anybody. Well, that's the start of Joseph beginning to work out this karmic situation properly. He didn't fly off into a rage and break things. And if he did, he didn't make a public spectacle of it or of Mary. He sought to put her away privily. He sought to just break up with her, break off the engagement and just leave it at that. Well, one night, shortly thereafter, in a dream, an angel comes to him and says, Joseph, it's okay to take Mary as your wife because what's in her, the fetus, was placed there by God. And we read over this part of the story, usually in such a quick manner. And we say, well, you know, God told him to do it. And okay, next, what's next in the story? But let's think about this for just a second. I don't know about you, but I've had some vivid dreams in life. Some of them have been really good. Some of them have been really terrible. 
But regardless of that, when I've woken up from these vivid dreams, I've known each and every time that that they were just dreams. You know, we all know the difference between dreams and being awake. And the difference is dreams are fantasies, not real. And when we're awake, this is what's real. Well, when Joseph woke up from this dream, uh, you know, Mary's still pregnant. And he, Joseph, still hasn't had conjugal relations with her, which means someone else got her pregnant. And boy, did that dream seem real. And boy, did it seem divinely inspired. But what I'm driving at is that there must have still been a little bit of doubt. It couldn't have just been that simple. But it was enough. It was enough to lead him towards a continuing workout of this karmic situation he was in. It was enough to push him forward. But there was another aspect of this. There was no third party to confirm in Joseph's mind that the dream was real and was from God. I suppose Mary could on one level, but I doubt that Joseph really had anyone to share the dream with, the situation with, with total candor, including Mary. You know, because who could Joseph go and tell the whole tale to with all the details. You know, Mary being pregnant and showing up and then this dream saying it's, it's really from God and don't worry and move forward and it's all going to be okay. I mean, who would believe that story and give Joseph the thumbs up? Yeah, you, that makes sense to me. Go for it. And I'm sure Mary could partly, but I'm sure it was difficult for Joseph to share his true feelings of betrayal and disappointment and, you know, his loss of the manly claims of her virginity, you know? which is a whole nother podcast. We'll just set that aside for right now. My point is that Joseph was alone. The breadcrumbs, the Easter egg, the email from Bob, however you want to think about it, was for him only. It was between him and God, and that's it, for his specific path. And I'm sure that path made Joseph doubt and wonder and ask again and ask for more reassurances. And I'm sure there were times when the changes that God was making in Joseph just kind of had to bake over time. We all have a path, and we all have specifics on this path. We're all placed in this cosmic slash karmic situation just for us to work out with God. And we'll all find ourselves in this place where there's no one else except God to guide us. And there's no third party looking on to affirm our decision. And once we head down that path, there's no turning back. And we'll all have those moments where we doubt the proverbial dreams and the proverbial guidance and the breadcrumbs and the Easter eggs, and we have to just let go. And it's a lot easier to let go if you think you're going to be reincarnated, but we don't think that, so it's, so it's harder. Or is it? Because we believe in eternity. We believe in a God that loved us before we came here and a God that will love us afterwards. And when you try to follow God... One of the things you learn, one of the intimate messages you receive just for you, I think, is that God is actually really, really nice and not judgmental at all. And that seems to contradict everything we learned during the first stages of life when we were walking along the universal path and becoming competent with the basics. And it's a relief to feel that in earnest for the first time. It's a relief to know you're an individual, and it's a relief to know you're not alone. And the only reason I mention any of this 
is because I don't think it's occurred at all to most of us that that could possibly be true. Because for most of us, God is that mission president. God is that elders quorum president or bishop or grandfather or teacher or coach, the person that prodded us, the person that chastised us when we made mistakes as we were walking along the straight and narrow, the first part of our life, while we were learning the basics. Those people were so dissatisfied and we sought so hard to satisfy them that it drove us and it never occurred to us, to many of us, that God is nothing like that at all. And if it did ever occur to us, we never really allowed ourselves to entertain that notion for too long because that notion seems to violate everything we were taught while walking along the straight and narrow. And therein lies part of the paradox and beauty of life itself. But it's only when we come face to face with that paradox and that beauty that phrases like, seek and ye shall find, make any sense. Phrases like, knock and it shall be opened unto you, make any sense. Those things make sense because God loves you as an individual, talks to you as an individual, communicates in ways that are clever and unique and personalized just for you as you work through whatever you came to work through. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.